Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isker, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today, my co-host is Trina Tsideros, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here, as always. Well, today we're going to have a little discussion around pandemic prep. It's never too early to start looking ahead to how can we prepare better? How can the health industry be better prepared, the government, community organizations, and of course, us as individuals and consumers? So with that in mind, maybe we could start by talking about are there calls for preparation now? And you know, how are we looking ahead to be ready for the next pandemic? Well, Ben, I think that one of the most predictable things about a pandemic is that following it, there will be calls for preparation for the next pandemic. And we can look back at the SARS outbreaks of 2003. And in the wake of those, there were plenty of calls for preparedness. I'm thinking in particular about Michael Osterholm, who's a frequent contributor to news organizations during this pandemic. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. And in 2003, he wrote, the resources needed must be considered in light of the eventual costs of failing to invest in such an effort. The loss of human life, even in a mild pandemic, will be devastating. And the cost of a world economy in shambles for several years can only be imagined. So he said that in 2003. Also, similarly, Dr. Paul Culford, who battled SARS in a Toronto hospital, made a similar plea in The Lancet in 2005. He said, SARS must change us forever, the way we treat the planet and how we deliver healthcare forever. Will we be ready when it returns? And of course, we are living in the return of SARS cousin, COVID-19, caused by SARS-CoV-2. And I think we've seen how well we prepared as a nation and as a globe and also the weaknesses that still remain, even though we've had many dress rehearsals all through history. We can trace pandemics all the way back millennia. And yet, you know, some lessons are are never learned and some lessons are learned and some improvements are made. So, Ben, I'm wondering, what are some of the strengths that we have found we have during this pandemic. All the news is not bad. We have found that there are some incredible strengths that we have in terms of dealing with pandemics. Well, that's right, Trina. And I think this is an important time to think about the strengths and challenges, because as you mentioned before, there's one thing that's certain, there will be other pandemics, even as we are still battling this one. There's one obvious strength, which I think there's been a lot of discussion about, which is around the vaccine development. And I know in our research, we've published a lot about vaccine development, as have others. And the timeline, which many in the past have seen as an eight-year timeline or seven-year timeline, at the minimum, a multi-year timeline, Obviously, we have seen that be incredibly accelerated. And part of that's because of the science behind the vaccine development. But there's really a lot of other things that are happening simultaneously that we can really learn from. And so we think about trial recruitment for those vaccine trials and how quickly those were spun up, because now you can reach people much more quickly through social media. You can identify people more quickly. A lot of things can be done virtually. So Certainly, I think vaccine development is one of those. 
the sharing of scientific and medical discoveries happening at a much quicker pace, the ability to share data. Certainly saw that at the beginning of the pandemic, even as we talked about the different models that were projecting cases. Many of those were built on shared data and interaction to build the best one. So I think that's one big takeaway. I think the other one is something I alluded to, which is this pivot to virtual. And we saw that in healthcare delivery. We've seen that to some extent with the vaccine development, especially around trials, is that we've now learned that we can actually deliver a lot of healthcare virtually. Now, we've been trying this for decades. You know, we don't want to forget that virtual care telehealth was started in the 1950s. It's been used in rural areas, remote areas for decades but it really hadn't taken off in a mainstream way. And the pandemic really forced the hand. For example, we saw prior to the pandemic, probably only about 1% of the population over 65 was using telehealth. And we've had certain times during the pandemic over the last year that that rose to 25, 30% of the over 65 population now having that experience. So those are some good takeaways. Those are some things we can build on going forward. I guess, Trina, we probably ought to go also to the other side of the house, which are we've learned about a few weaknesses in the system as well. Tell us about some of those. Yeah, yeah. So I would say that that one of the big weaknesses that we found was that the supply chain is pretty fragile. And I think we all remember back a year ago or so that we heard about hospitals scrambling for personal protective equipment for their nurses and doctors and, and other staff. We know that there were shortages in supplies of ventilators, even shortages of toilet paper in hospitals and IV poles. And the US OIG did come out with a report after they had surveyed provider executives and they found these widespread shortages of these kinds of things and medicines too. And so one of the things that's happening in all corners of the US health industry and really the global health industry is a rethinking of the supply chain. What can we do to ensure that the next time a pandemic happens, hopefully many years from now, that we do not face the same kinds of challenges? And so that is one of the weaknesses that came forward during this pandemic and one that is one of the top priorities that executives that we've surveyed at HRI say is a top priority for the coming year. You ask provider executives whether they experience a supply chain shortage or disruption, the percentages are over 80% of provider executives saying that they had in during the pandemic. And if you ask provider executives or pharma life sciences executives, whether supply chain is a priority, the percentages are very high in terms of making that something that is going to be a focus this year and in the coming years. You see that actually in the spending that's been allocated by Congress over the last couple of months in terms of the pandemic, a lot of money is being put toward supply chain, shoring up the supply chain, securing the supply chain, making it more transparent from the federal dollar side. But we will also see investments in the coming years from the private sector as well. And so that is one of the weaknesses that we have been seeing. The other one is one that is very predictable and yet pandemic after pandemic, we do not do enough. It is in the area of health equity. And this time we found that African-Americans and Latinx Americans bore a disproportionate share of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. This is for all ages, children as well, and 
Even when you looked at the economic calamity, you found the same thing, that African-Americans, Latinx Americans bore the brunt of the economic calamity that ensued. And we see now the vaccination rates are lower in these populations. And so people are being protected less. So this is an area that is just a reflection of our health system overall. This is not a surprise to anyone who looks at these numbers and looked at them before the pandemic. This is something you could see in the cholera epidemics of the 19th century in the U.S. You can just look back pandemic after pandemic and that populations with less resources that experience racism and other structural problems that are baked into the system tend to do worse in these pandemics. And if that's not addressed, we would expect the same thing to happen the next time around. And so that is another area of weakness that we will see, we expect the health system addressing in the coming years. Well, I think inequity is certainly something that has come to light. And I think one of our earlier podcasts, we talked about this concept that people think that we're all experiencing the pandemic together. And in reality, we're really not, that different communities, different zip codes experience it in very different ways. One question that, of course, it always comes back to is resources. And for pandemic preparedness, you really have to have money to make those preparations. So we do have something before us. And Trina, I was hoping you could just highlight just a couple of key points in terms of the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 and what we may see in there that could help us prepare for the next one. So this is the so-called COVID relief bill, the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. And it includes billions of dollars that could be put under the title pandemic preparedness. So there are billions of dollars for combating this pandemic, but also other emerging infectious disease threats globally. There's money to create a national center to combat pandemics. There is money to develop an infectious disease forecasting system to track hotspots for COVID-19, but also other emerging biological threats. And there's $1.75 billion for genomic sequencing, analytics, and disease surveillance, including to identify mutations, which was an area of weakness for our country. We really have right now very little ability to surveil for genomic changes in the virus. And so that is expected to change going forward. There's also billions of dollars to expand our public health workforce, which we found in the pandemic has shrunken in recent years, right at the wrong time. There is money to bolster rural health centers, which is another area that you could put under pandemic preparedness. Also, there is money to expand graduate medical education grants, which will helpfully expand the supply of our medical workforce in the future. And there is also money for mental health support, which we know became an enormous issue during the pandemic. A lot of Americans, a lot of clinicians suffering from depression, anxiety, suicidality, substance abuse. And so there's a great demand for services to address that. And we expect that will continue going forward as well. And so there's money, there's billions of dollars in federal money for that. Also, the infrastructure plan that President Joe Biden put forward in the last day of March has a lot of money that you could consider pandemic preparedness, including a lot of money for high-speed broadband expansion, which will help telehealth. So things like that, there's a lot of money for. There's also a lot of money that you could put under the heading of social determinants of health, and that will help address some of the health inequities that I just spoke about. So Ben, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about some specific areas of preparation 
including telehealth, which, as you said, has really surged during the pandemic. What are we expecting to see in terms of investments over the coming years to prepare for the next pandemic? I'm actually really passionate about telehealth and virtual health. It's something that we have been following for many years here in the Health Research Institute, as you know. And so it's really exciting to see how it's being used in a new way with the pandemic really creating incredible barriers to access. And I think your question is the right one. We kind of all had this pressure test of not having access in terms of the normal ways we go to the doctor, to the clinic, to the hospital, and many of those visits being replaced with virtual visits. And I think the question going forward is how much of that is going to stay around and what kind of investments need to be made? Well, we can look at some of our research, 92% of healthcare providers, these are leaders of healthcare companies, hospitals and clinics and such. In a survey, they told us that they are using telehealth for primary care services. So that's an incredible percentage of healthcare leaders who say they're now using this. The largest shares, that 68% said telehealth has been most useful for follow-up appointments. So if you have a relationship, an in-person relationship, you can continue that and those visits in a virtual manner. One of the areas that I think we'll see some true permanent change is in the area of mental health. And the pandemic has not only been stressful because of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but also because of what's happened in terms of the economy, what's happened in terms of people's workplaces and kids going to school. So there's been a lot of stress out there. And mental health has been one of those bright spots in terms of service delivery that as things shut down, we were able to quickly pivot to mental health visits. One area where I think we're going to need some new investment, though, and this is in the area of how are we going to do ongoing care management for those with chronic conditions? You know, our health leaders, when we did our survey, only 17% said that they are using virtual or telehealth for ongoing care management. I would say that's a missed opportunity. Chronic care is as like diabetes and COPD and other diseases really affect people's quality of life. They affect productivity. If they are not managed well, they tend to spiral into poorer health and more and more costs. So I think this is certainly an area that we need to bolster and make investment in is that this is not just a primary care access point. It's also a continuous monitoring and improvement point for those with chronic conditions. So I think we look to that as one area that we'll see some future investment going forward. You know, I want to actually turn it back to you, Trina, and we're kind of on this theme of digital and virtual. And I've been talking a lot about what it does for consumers and patients, but I think there's another aspect to this is how are physicians and other clinicians working differently and what will digital potentially help them do in terms of pandemic preparedness? Yeah, I think one of the features of the pandemic has been to bring forward the pains of clinicians who have dealt with unbelievable stresses due to the onslaught of the patients suffering from COVID-19 and the switch in the way that they work, all of these things. And this has been sort of a long-time issue for providers anyway, pre-pandemic. The clinician experience has been a concern, sort of a simmering concern, but now I think it's kind of a boiling one. And so when we surveyed health executives recently, 
90% of them said they are prioritizing the clinician experience in 2021, which is an enormous, it's almost like a, a consensus that this is an important thing to focus on. And so what we are seeing is providers and companies that have technologies that can help working on ways to take the burden off of clinicians and help them focus on treating the patient, getting rid of some of these administrative tasks that break into the day, add a lot of time, take away a lot of time from patients and add to stress. And so we're seeing health systems embrace team-based communication technologies, voice-to-text EHR documentation, and technologies like that. We are also seeing the pharmaceutical and life sciences industry rethink their engagement with clinicians because it was completely disrupted by the pandemic. And so if you ask executives in the provider world and in the life sciences world about whether the pandemic negatively affected the engagement between pharma sales representatives and clinicians, you get large majorities of both saying, yes, it did and that there's a feeling in the industry, a rethinking of that, and a lot of creative solutions are being brought forward. A lot of digital solutions are being brought forward as a necessity, and we expect that will also go forward you know, beyond the pandemic and into the next one, hopefully many years from now. So just sort of along those lines, continuing with sort of the digital data analytics forecasting, sort of creating a crystal ball is also an area that the healthcare industry is investing in. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. What are we seeing in terms of crystal balls? Well, I love the analogy of the crystal ball because that's exactly the challenge that we've had over the last year is that our crystal balls have been actually quite cloudy and sometimes pointed at the wrong thing. And so I think the investment will come in two different areas for pandemic preparedness. One is it is now very clear that forecasting is not very helpful at a national level. We have to have zip code level forecasting for there to be interventions, hospitals and doctors, and at least at the city or county or regional level need to know what's happening in their local area so they can make preparations. If we went all the way back to like, where do we need PPE? Where do we need ventilators? Or right now, where do we need vaccines? All of that requires a precision that larger national models or even sometimes large regional models just don't help us enough with. So I think that's one area of investment. The second area of investment is around getting additional data besides just health data. And so to have a good intervention in a community, we need to know more than just the health status of the community. We also need to know what are their transportation issues? What are their health literacy issues? Do they have access to food or are they living in a food desert? So all of those things become really important when you're trying to create an intervention. Look, we're seeing it right now with vaccine distribution in some areas. It's going relatively well in other areas. It's challenging because of technology, or because of lack of resources. And so when we talk about forecasting and the investments around that, going forward, we need to, one, have more specificity down to the zip code level so we can move our resources around. And number two, we need to have a layer of social determinant data that can help us create an intervention which will actually be successful in particular communities. So those are the really, I would say, the two big takeaways for future investment. 
You know, I wanted to bring up something that we talked about at the top of the podcast. We just touched on Trina, which was around supply chain, because I think it does actually relate to the forecasting as well, right? We're forecasting where we need interventions, which often require material and drugs and supplies. So what type of investments do you expect for pandemic planning around supply chain? Yeah, actually, we kind of know because we at HRI asked pharma life sciences executives in the fall what kinds of supply chain priorities they had, because we heard from them that the vast majority of life sciences executives expect that improving the supply chain overall would be a priority this year and going forward. So what they told us is that 50% of these life sciences executives that we surveyed said that improving the transparency of the supply chain was a priority and something that would be worked on. 22% said that finding the right suppliers was a priority. 16% said that improving the security of the supply chain was a priority. And 11% said that understanding and managing third-party risks was a priority. So if we look at that, transparency really pops out as a priority for life sciences executives. And we expect to see a good amount of investment in that area in understanding the supply chain. That's what transparency means, understanding what's happening when and having the data that supports all of that. And that is an area that we think will be an area of investment. I think that the federal government as well has put quite a bit of money around shoring up the supply chain and trying to create incentives around reshoring activities in the United States. The drug industry is in a global industry, and it has been for a really long time, hundreds of years, surprisingly long. This is not a recent phenomenon. You can find recipes for treatments going back hundreds of years that have ingredients that are sourced all over the globe. So this is not an industry that's recently globalized. It has been for a long time. And so reshoring will take some work, but we do have some expectation among life sciences executives that some of the components of the supply chain will be reshored back to the United States within two to five years. And so we should see some kind of activity in that area as well. And I think that will be very interesting to see going forward. We see in the American Rescue Plan Act, the Biden administration and the Democrats willing to use the Defense Production Act to do some of this, to make some of this happen. And so I think that it will be very interesting to watch to see if a domestic industry is nurtured in areas that haven't been as much before. Well, I think the supply chain is a great place to end our evaluation of pandemic preparedness. For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.